The following is a special episode of Common Sense Digest. On Tuesday, March 29th, 2022, CSI hosted its Eggs in the Economy program, which is a quarterly symposium featuring guest speakers on a variety of public policy issues. This edition focused on the crime wave hitting Colorado. You'll hear from CSI president and CEO Kristen Strom, and then our panel of experts, including criminal justice fellow George Brockler, criminal justice fellow Mitch Morrissey, and Dave Hayes, police chief for City of Louisville. The panel was moderated by John Halbert, publisher of Colorado Biz Magazine. Thank you for listening, and for more detail, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. And now, the most recent edition of Eggs in the Economy. Okay, we are going to get started. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this morning. There's a few seats up here still. Come on in. Thank you, Frida, for that reminder. Phone's off. Um, My name is Kristen Strom. I serve as president and CEO of the Common Sense Institute. Really want to thank you all for attending. We started Eggs in the Economy about four years ago, and it's just wonderful to see how much this has grown. Uh, For those of you that have not attended an Eggs in the Economy in the past, it's a quarterly symposium where we like to showcase CSI's work, most recent work, and have a discussion on the policy issues that are impacting our lives the most. We've grown a lot over the last several years, as you can see. I wanna thank our amazing team of researchers, economists, fellows that are here today. Special thanks to Cree and Megan for putting this event on. Thank you very much. Um, And one other important thing that I just wanna acknowledge as we start today's program is that Common Sense Institute recently expanded. We are now in the state of Arizona which is really exciting. Um, As of March 1st, we launched a CSI Arizona. The reason is, is because we know that policy happens at the state level. We know that it happens at the local level and that if policymakers and voters can be informed on the facts, better policy outcomes will be the results. So we're really excited. And if you are ever in Arizona, look us up, or if you wanna connect down there, let us know. Um, CSI was created over 12 years ago by a group of concerned business leaders. And I'd like to real quickly just acknowledge our board members and founders that are in the audience today. If you could please stand. These board members are dedicated to ensuring that elected officials and Coloradans have the facts, and I just want to really thank you for your service. Um, I also want to thank Amazon. Amazon has been Eggs in the Economy sponsor now for two years. Without Amazon support, these events really wouldn't be possible. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We rely on the support from individuals like all of you, from companies and foundations, Um, and partners in the community, so thank you to Amazon. In addition, we're fortunate to work with a lot of great media partners across Colorado. Today, we're partnering with Colorado Biz Magazine. You'll see on your table, there's the latest edition of their magazine, Um, and later we'll hear from John, who's with Colorado Biz Magazine as well. Thank you, John and Colorado Biz Magazine. So, Let's get to today's discussion. We're gonna dive right in. We have a lot to cover in today's program and I know a lot of you are really interested in the topic. It's crime, this first part. I think it's been something that's been on all of our minds for a long time. Um, In the last year, my car was broken into twice. 
we had a CSI interns Cadillac converter sawed off just in here in Greenwood Village. Um, I had a friend whose property was damaged. We're hearing all of these stories. We know that it's impacting each and every one of our lives. It's impacting business, small business especially in Colorado. It's impacting our way of life. But I don't think that any of us really realized the true impacts and costs that crime was costing us until Chris, Alexa, and our great fellows, former DAs Mitch Morrissey and George Brockler shed light last December in a groundbreaking report analyzing what the true cost of crime was. In fact, before they even released that report, there wasn't one policymaker talking about crime. It wasn't being covered. Flash forward to today, the governor's now held two press conferences on the issue. There are 35 bills making their way through the legislative session trying to address crime. There's multiple ballot initi initiatives that have been filed. We know that this is a problem. This is not who Colorado is. Um, and it's something that needs to be addressed. So I'm really thrilled today to have this amazing panel lineup to have a robust, honest conversation about what the costs are, what the facts are around crime for our state, but also what is a path forward? What are different solutions that we might be able to start exploring? So I'd like to welcome the panelists up. I'm gonna start with uh, George Brockler. Finish your, you can bring your burrito, George, up the stage if you want. Uh, George served as the elected district attorney for the 18th Judicial, Colorado's most populous district, which includes Arapahoe, Douglas, Elbert, Lincoln counties from 2013 to 2021. As a state prosecutor, he handled felony cases from the Columbine High School mass shooting, the Aurora Theater mass shooting, and recently the STEM Academy school mass shooting. Over his career, George has served as a deputy district attorney, special assistant U.S. attorney, military prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, military defense attorney, and just prior to his election, the chief of military justice. George, and you can add now that you're a CSI fellow, which, no. G.I. Jane too, did I? Uh, no G.I. Jane jokes, George. I just thought I'd, I told Kellner earlier on I was probably gonna slap him and just oh, happen, but. Uh, well, welcome, George. Thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you. Thank you. Next, I'd like to invite CSI Criminal Justice Fellow Mitch Morrissey up. Mitch was the elected district attorney for the second judicial from November 2005 until January 2017. Mitch is internationally recognized for his expertise in DNA technology, applying that technology in criminal prosecutions, and working to ensure that DNA science is admissible in court. Mitch spearheaded the Denver Cold Case Project, which reviewed over 4,200 unsolved sexual assaults and murders using DNA technology to solve old cases. After leaving the Denver DA's office in 2017, Mitch co-founded United Data Connect, a forensic DNA software company which has developed a secure web-based system to make familial search software available. United Data Connect is a leader in solving cold case rapes and murders with investigative genetic genealogy. Mitch, welcome. And oh, I'm supposed to say, Mitch is a new recent author. He just wrote a book, which you can find on Kindle and Amazon. 
Uh, it's about Denver's district attorney's office, a history of crime in the Mile High City. So everybody go pick it up. How is that plug? Is that good? Um, I'd also like to welcome Chief Dave Hayes up. Um, Chief Pazin was supposed to be in attendance today. Unfortunately, he had a scheduling conflict come up, and we're thrilled that Chief Dave Hayes with the city of Louisville could be here. Chief Hayes was born and raised in Denver. He has served those who live, work, and visit Boulder County for over four decades. He graduated from a joint Boulder Police Department, Boulder Sheriff's Office Academy in 1978, and served the Boulder community until 2014. He currently serves as Vice President of the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police. In 2014, he was appointed Chief of Police in Louisville, where he continues to serve. And most recently, I found out, he just announced he's running for Boulder County Sheriff this year. So thank you for being here. And lastly, want to welcome up John Howard with Colorado Biz. John is the publisher of Colorado Biz Magazine, the only statewide print publication dedicated to coverage of the Colorado economy, business, finance, technology industries, and the leaders behind them. As publisher, John is responsible for managing Colorado Biz's business operations and ensuring the magazine is an editorial and commercial success. In addition to its e-newsletters, exclusive interviews, content, and networking events, Colorado Biz is known for special issues such as Best of Colorado, Top Company, Top Women in Business, and Made in Colorado. Every year, Colorado Biz performs extensive research, collects industry data, and facilitates reader voting to produce various business rankings. John is also the founding manager and partner of HB Legacy Media Company a small strategic communications firm that is de designed to tackle complex and difficult to message topics. He has nearly 20 years of government and public affairs experience in congressional and communication strategies with an emphasis in energy and environmental policy. John, the floor is yours. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, thank you all. I hope this is on. Um, thank you. Thank you to Common Sense Institute. Um, I'll give a couple of remarks here before we start. Um, I also want to say thank you for, for producing these reports, um, making them public to the media, making them public to policymakers. Clearly, they are forcing action and things to happen in our state. Um, but in particular, I want to thank you for being solution-oriented. Uh, so often, we hear a lot of complaints, uh, identifying the problem, but bringing a solution to the table infinitely as important um, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing at, at the Common Sense Institute. Um, I guess in my opinion it's always better to be for something so thank you um, and thank you to the staff that helped put this together um, in particular uh, everyone at CSI but also Catalyst Public Affairs thank you for helping to organize this. Um, it's great to be here um, it's ironic for, for many years I was on the other side of the table I don't come from journalism um, I'm not a traditional publisher, so I look at things very different, um, especially from the advocacy side of things. So I welcome stories that aren't told, things that need to get out. If you have an idea, I welcome to be that forum to help get really the great stories out. Um, there's too much focus on negativity, and we'll certainly cover a lot of that today. Um, but I'm also reminded for every negative story that's front page, 
there are several more great positive successes that we need to get out there, and we need to celebrate those accomplishments, especially in the business community as well. So thank you all, and uh, we'll get on to our panelists today. So we're talking about the crime wave. Um, I have some prepared questions, and we can ebb and flow as needed. So um, I'll try to direct the questions I have in mind for the individuals, but if anyone would like to chime in, I, I think that's perfectly fine. Um, so it looks like there are some of the statistics from the report up on the screen. Uh, for those who haven't read it, it looks like these are the key findings. Um, I'm sure you can catch in the executive summary. So first questions go to George and Mitch. Uh, this is the second crime report um, you've both been a part of. George, why did you want to be involved in the conversation in Colorado's crime issue? I, uh, I live here. My family lives here. I intend to continue to live here. I've been here since I don't know any other home. And so I have seen Colorado change over the years and Denver for many good reasons, but lately some pretty pronounced bad ones is just not the same place that I grew up in. You couple that with the fact that I spent 27 years in the criminal justice system, not always as a prosecutor, by the way. I was also a chief defense attorney for the army. I was in private practice right up the road in Denver. I have beaten my own office in trial as a defense attorney. So I don't come at this from the standpoint of just uh, prosecution oriented. I come at this from a public safety justice oriented thing. And it was a real pleasure to work with CSI and to have them uh, invite me to do this. And then when I got to partner up with the guy with the best hair in prosecution, I said, I'm in. <laughs> and uh, Mitch brings not just the best hair, but I mean, so much experience and wisdom on this. I thought it was such a great collaborative effort, and but I felt like when we issued that first report, we knew it was unfinished. We knew it was unfinished because where we were on the calendar and the information that was available, and uh, there was an opportunity here to come back and tell the rest of the story, at least leading up to this important year for some policymakers, and that's why I did it. You want the same yeah. question for me? Yeah, or if there's anything you wanted to add uh, in terms of the report, if there are any key takeaways that you felt really needed focus that you wanted to, to highlight. Well, to give you some background, I uh, my grandfather was the U.S. Attorney for Colorado, longest serving, because Roosevelt was the longest serving president. My father was a defense attorney, represented some real bad people early in his career. Um, and I, I'll never forget my grandfather saying, just trust it, downtown Denver will come back, because during that time, downtown Denver was in really bad shape. And I remember when I was a high schooler and actually went to school with his brother, older brother at Mullen High School, we would go downtown. And you would see more cops than you would people. It was vacant. And it was really kind of a forgotten place. And then we got to see it just, and when I was DA, Downtown, people were moving downtown, the baseball, you know, the basketball, everything was happening down there. And my fear is that we're going back. And the things that are going on at Union Station, the things that go on at Civic Center Park, now they've got it closed. Uh, it, it's sad to see, it's sad to see, uh, after serving 30 some odd years as a prosecutor, I was never a defense attorney. I always worked in the Denver DA's office and. Uh, you know, I got to work with people like Bill Buckley, who's here, who tried more murder cases than anybody in the history of the state of Colorado. But I think he'd agree to see Denver 
kind of turn like it has in the state of Colorado. It, it's, uh, it, it's, we deserve better than this. Our children deserve better than this. And this should not be the environment that they're growing up in. I think the most disturbing thing that I saw when we did the initial report was just the costs. The costs are just astronomical of this crime rate. And then to see it go up again to over $33 billion, incredible. And then I think that for me, with the most recent report, the most disappointing thing was the increase in the homicide rate. And you know what? You know, I've got that book on the history of Denver. To see a historic thing like we're seeing with a homicide rate over 400 people killed in the state of Colorado last year. And that goes, that's first time we've ever had numbers like that since they've been keeping the records. It was a historic year. Unfortunately, it was a very sad year. Thank you. Uh, Chief Hayes, so this, this one's for you. Um, so these gentlemen get to uh, work on the report and uh, author important key findings like this, but you're out there on the front lines. Um, you see uh, what's happening every single day. Um, wondering what you could indicate or point out what you're seeing and what stands out and, and through your lens, what it is that you're focused on when you see some of these statistics. Well, as we know, crime is up throughout the state, even in Louisville, Colorado, which we have sometimes affectionately call it uh, kind of a modern day Mayberry, not so much now with all the, the, the lost homes, but crime is up. If Chief Pazin was here, what Chief Pazin would talk about is, of course, fentanyl, uh, how deadly it is, and at, at Union Station, and we all know what that looks like, and it's a pretty good-sized building, a good-sized piece of property, but Chief Pazin in a call last week I was on with him described there's actually rival gangs now trying to figure out who's going to control the fentanyl sales at Union Station, and with fentanyl, the price at $5 a tablet, I've heard it's now down to 2 or $3 a tablet, how deadly that is, and trying, trying to figure out a way to, to get a handle on that. Combine that now with officers you know, concerned about their loss of qualified immunity, um, not being able to hire, retain, or recruit officers because their family pressures or their own, their own mind thinking, why, why would I want to do this? Uh, when I joined the, the, uh, the Boulder Police Department several years ago, that really started with a conversation I had with a Denver police officer who I'm still in contact with now, almost 50 years later. I remember leaving, uh, he was working radar on South University, and I remember walking away from that conversation. At that time, I was, uh, grew up in, the, in the, uh, as a, a Catholic, uh, Catholic parish in Denver. It was, at that time, you were, you were gonna be a Catholic priest, right? You were in Catholic school. So I ended up talking with this Denver police officer thinking, wow, he gets paid to do this. He gets paid to help people. And not that priests don't help people, don't get me wrong. But, and, and that really set me on that, on that path. And I was eight or nine years old. And uh, then when I was old enough, joined the Boulder Police Department and stayed there for 36 years. And I've, I just have never seen anything like this before where the profession isn't, isn't respected. I think even some folks in the profession are having that, those same questions like, I should be doing something else. It, I, there's just too much exposure for me. There's too much crime. I'm afraid to do anything. Um, what, what, what do I do? What can I, and, and I, and I think we, we've got to get a handle on that. I think the increase in crime is a whole bunch of things, right? But part of, part of that is I think officers not wanting to be as assertive as they should be making contacts. 
Uh, Mitch Morrissey and I talked about it this morning when we first got here. Officers are afraid to do their jobs, and we need to figure out a way to, to reverse that. Uh, and by the way, again, uh, that Denver police officer was Jim Burkhalter, who I know Mitch Morrissey knows. And 50-plus years later today, I'm still in contact with him. So. Um, I wanted to follow up on the first comments, um, especially related to the, the murder statistic, which is um, very disheartening. We also talk about fentanyl and drugs. These have a very personal connection. Either we know people or we see it firsthand when we're in Denver or other cities. Um, what about some of the, um, the crimes on, let's, the, the, like the property related, the economic value, the cost that you're seeing from this report as well, especially from a a business perspective, we like to look at the business economic numbers as well. What would your comments be regarding the damage to property, whether it's cars or homes or businesses? Um, it's a very, it's a different story. But what would you say to to what you're seeing in terms of trends uh, along property damage? Well, what, 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 you know, when we did the initial report, uh, it really looked like auto theft. You know, Colorado is off the chart when it comes to auto theft. We're number one in the United States in auto theft. And you're thinking, well, you know, maybe that's a trend that we were looking at for the idea that what COVID caused, did COVID cause this crime rate? And actually, when I talked to Chief Pazin about it, he said auto theft started to spike and go up in 2014 when they basically reduced the uh, penalties and made them lower level felonies like Colorado doesn't care. You know, we don't care about, it's just a property crime. It's just an auto theft. Until you have your car stolen and you find out what it costs you, both intangible and intangible costs. And it's pretty incredible. But when you look at the, really, the astronomical property crime numbers that we've seen and have now seen the increase in, Denver went from the fourth worst in property crimes to the second worst in the United States in property crimes. That is really being driven by auto theft. Uh, talked about catalytic converters. They steal your catalytic converter, and your insurance company is going to say you, they're going to total out your car. Uh, it is a great cost. And if you don't live in the front range, you may not be facing this crime rate, but you're paying for it. Over $5,000 a year per person for every citizen, no matter what age, in the state of Colorado. So it's like, well, I live in a relatively safe place. I'm not seeing this crime. You're paying for this crime. I, uh, just a shout out to one of our sponsors here. I just looked it up. You can get a catalytic converter from Amazon. <laughs> you can do it. Just look it up. Um, there's something about the property crime, though. These crimes can't be looked at in a silo. They're not mutually exclusive to one another. There's different things that take place that encourage this environment. It's not just the permissive policies when it comes to property crime, but what we have done with drugs is to really create uh, an opportunity for addicts to remain addicts and feed that addiction by uh, engaging in property crime. And Mitch has been really great about pointing out that stolen cars aren't just like I steal them, they get cut up like the movies, and I make money. That's not how it works. Many times these cars are stolen to perpetuate other crimes, sometimes violent crimes, whether it's home invasion burglaries, business burglaries, but, you know, when you throw that word that Mitch used a couple times, just, in front of a crime, you do serious damage to the public safety issue here. And that is to say it's just marijuana, it's just drug possession, it's just property crime. You diminish it 
for the whole community, and it leads to this permissive attitude. And our approach policy-wise, and I imagine we'll get here, I'll just give you an example of where I feel like we want to do the right thing and we have some good ideas, but we just aren't tackling this in a smart way, and that's this recent fentanyl bill. There's a bill out there that is heavy on the idea that we want to push people into rehabilitation. I'm all in. There is nobody up here that is a lock them up and throw away the key kind of guy. I'm all in for that. But in that bill, that bill says we're going to mandate rehabilitation, but at the same time, it leaves fentanyl possession of up to four grams, which is enough to kill 2,000 people, four grams as a misdemeanor. Guess who's not going to jail on misdemeanors? Everybody. The way the system is set up now, you get a ticket. You are not going to be incarcerated. And if you're getting a ticket and you're not being incarcerated and not going to see the court, when is that mandated rehabilitation going to kick in? Months from now? Maybe if you go to court and you get convicted and you get sentenced? It's a bill that is full of partially good ideas. And in some ways, it's all stuff that will address the future when you talk about what to do with drugs. The rehabilitation, and we want to focus. That's all great stuff. It's like going to see the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you have a tumor. And you say, well, my God, what should we do about the tumor? How do we address the tumor? And he says, you should eat more vegetables. And you're like, okay, okay, yeah, long term, probably a good idea. What about the tumor? So the approach to policy in my mind has to be more than just down the road rehabilitation. We have to tackle some of the things right now. And honest to God, some of the best things you can do for an addict is to take them out of the environment where they can feed that addiction. And we don't do it. And when we don't do it, you see these property crime spikes because we don't treat those seriously either. And to adding to that, the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police were we were opposed to that uh, that bill, and we've made our our uh, objections known for the, for all of these very very reasons. And getting back to auto theft, you know, I, I suspect most people in this room probably have insurance if your car was stolen. But what about the victims who don't have insurance or don't have that? coverage or they're waiting to hear from their insurance company, how do they get back and forth to work? In the meantime, the defendant in most of those cases has gotten a ticket and uh, has to appear in court at some point, but until the jail started reopening again after, um, after COVID, um, nothing would happen to you if you failed to appear in court. Without a defendant, you can't be a victim. You're not eligible for restitution. You're not eligible to make a statement to the court and the whole system stops and we have to we have to get back to a system that includes victims in all of this. It can't be just around the defendant. There has to be a victim piece to all of this. You know, we saw a study that was sent out that said, well, if you felonize people with fentanyl, that doesn't decrease the deaths. Well, that's true. There's no doubt that's true. But if you want to know what a, the problem is, look at the filings in the Denver DA's office. 2019, when they made it a misdemeanor, they filed about 90 fentanyl cases, three times that in 2021. It doubled in 2020, three times that in, three, in uh, last year. So yeah, it's this big problem. How are we going to address it? Well, we're going to arrest the dealer. We're going to then give them PR bonds. 70% of them in Denver get PR bonds, and a PR bond is a promise to return. Guess what they don't do at about 50%, which is about 20% higher than all the other PR bonds they give in Denver. And I think that when, when George talks about this tumor issue, you know, and, and it's a great analogy. And the reason it is, is that early childhood development, drug treatment, 
mental health, drug courts, all the things that Bill Ritter and myself, I ran the biggest drug court in the state, one of the oldest in the country. We fought to keep it going because we knew it made a difference. If you take an addict and you get them clean and sober, guess what? You're, they don't commit crimes anymore. They don't victimize their own families who they usually start with and then they're not out there committing those auto thefts, those burglaries. So those things work. The problem that we have is we have a tumor. And that tumor is that our professional criminals, the people that are repeat offenders and violent offenders are currently on the streets of our state. And that goes from our first study, we've got one third the population in the penitentiary, You've got 5,000 people or more on PR bonds in Denver. These are repeat offenders, violent offenders. They have three or four individuals that murdered people while they're under the supervision of the PR bond. Chief Pazin couldn't make it this morning, but he had an incredible statistic on the number of people that committed murders in the last two years in Denver that were under the supervision of the criminal justice system either on bond, on probation or in community corrections, or on parole. These problems started uh, about 10 years ago. And so those ideas of those long-term things that we can do to keep people out of the criminal justice system, we support that. They need to be in place. But it isn't the three-year-old that needs early childhood development that's probably stealing your car right now down in the parking lot or in your house, breaking into your house and stealing things there. That's our criminal population, and they're out. So uh, follow up, uh, other than what you're defining as this environment, any other, what else would you attribute this, this rise in crime, especially the auto theft? Is there anything that you could see that is leading up to this? Anything else to comment on? Well, in 2000, and 13, I went to the legislature, and I think people know what I say that was the going to the legislature was the most unpleasant part of my job as the district attorney. <laughs> and I, I testified to this new drug scheme that they put in place back in 2013. And it was like, you know, okay, I'm all for this. That some of it will help my drug court, some of it will help us do what we're trying to do around people that are addicted. But why are you cutting the sentencing for drug dealers in half? Why are you giving the people that sell this poison to our kids a break? The rationale, well, the judges don't give those high-end sentences. It's like, what well, you should have that there. And now the Sentinel Bill, that's the big part of it, is increasing the sentencing range back to where it was uh, back then. And I was like those lone boys. I don't remember if George was there or not. But you know, I, I was just, the Denver Post said, yeah, this is a great idea. They really should do this. But Morrissey's making some good points here. That's been going on in our state for a long time. Those kinds of reductions, those kinds of reducing the crime rate, uh, I mean, not the crime rate, but reducing the penalties. It's been going on a long time. The, the, uh, the drug dealing thing, though, is legit, too. If you paid attention about a year ago, um, over the objection of a bunch of district attorneys and one who happens to be sitting in here right now, 
we cut off a whole bunch of things <coughs> that would normally qualify you to no longer possess a firearm legally in the state of Colorado. We enabled a bunch of convicted felons, including drug dealers, to get convicted of drug dealing, serve whatever minimal sentence they're going to get, and then go out and possess guns legally in Colorado. Even in the current bill that's an attempt to fix it, and honestly, this feels like for the legislature the year of the mulligan. Like, they got a bunch of things they wanted, and then they looked at it and went, Actually, I don't like that color. I want to change it. Or I don't like this. That's one of them. They still don't want to make it a felony. I mean, they don't want to preclude drug dealers, convicted drug dealers, from possessing firearms. It's this, there's a struggle going on under the Gold Dome from some folks who really deal with a great deal of skepticism with law enforcement and public safety, the criminal justice system, all of it. And it causes them to default on the side of taking away discretion from prosecutors taking away discretion from law enforcement on the ground, putting them on their heels instead of on their toes. We want proactive policing, not reactive policing. And then at the end of the day, they would much rather see things built automatically into the system that provide the benefit of the doubt to the offender. All of those things don't happen in one session. They have been taking place now over the last 10 plus years. And you can't, I don't think you can find too many laws where we've created a new class of victims, where we have emboldened victims. Uh, maybe there was one, John, I think, testified a couple years ago. You worked with Rhonda Fields on a bill. I think that's the only one I can think of where we've actually made things better for victims. Everything else has been a move towards being more offender-friendly. That has a cumulative impact over the course of years, and now we're seeing it. Remember the days when it used to be, hey, when the economy tanks, then crime goes up? That ain't it anymore. The economy was soaring in 2019 before the COVID, and so was crime. Uh, they're, they're not connected anymore. It's something else driving it, and I think that's permissive environment, drugs, mental health, all those things. And it sounds like we have time for, and I'm gonna leave the last question for you, but two parts. So okay. you must be overwhelmed with all of the, the, these threats coming from multiple facets. How do you prioritize people, property? I mean, how do, how do you do that? That's the first part of the question. And the second part is, I think we've also seen an uptick, an uptick in, this, in the support for police and the good work that is happening any uh, you know, ending comments or anything positive you want to share from community or people that uh, are showing their support for the police because we all witness these things on TV and the news um, and some are there to support our police officers too. Yeah, and we certainly enjoy a lot of support, I know in Louisville. In terms of prioritization, I'm always amazed that you know we're a pretty small department and somehow at the end of every shift, and we do a end of shift summary as most agencies do, and, um, how, how they get it all done and how they prioritize it. And it doesn't, it doesn't come in like clockwork. We get cases on top of cases and you know we had an, another fire risk over the weekend. At the same time, we had a, a shotgun suicide in Louisville. We only have probably three or four officers on at a time, but somehow our cops figure out a way to get it all done. And it's amazing how they do with that and how they prioritize it and what, what needs to come first. But, but in Louisville, we do a couple things really well by way of example is that we make things better than we found them and we investigate beyond the obvious. And those are two golden rules. And so far we've been able to keep up with it. That's on top of the, the fire that, that we've had and trying to guard all of those neighborhoods. Again, we enjoy a lot of support in Louisville and we've had agencies from throughout the state assisting us since the fire, helping to guard some of our neighborhoods so we don't re-victimize people. And uh, I talk to those officers because they're there every day, day and night. And all of them, without exception, say, 
I wish our community was like that because your neighbors and your friends and your families stop by and talk to these outside agencies, these officers, provide them food, provide them hot drinks or cold drinks, whatever it may be, and they thank them for being there. So we're really fortunate in, in Louisville. Um, I'm hoping that, that's, that, that we're seeing that throughout the state as well. But, it, but at some point, I'm concerned, like I think probably other folks on the panel, at some point we're going to wear our first responders out. Um, there just is not enough of them left. We can't recruit, we can't retain the, retain the way we used to. At some point, we're going to wear them out, and even the good ones, the ones we want to keep, are going to say, I just, I just can't do this anymore. And we need, to, we need to figure out a way to turn that around. Part of the way to turn that around is we've got to figure out what, this crime thing and this idea that you, somebody steals a car and you write them a ticket like you're writing them a traffic ticket. Uh, just simply doesn't make any sense, and they're, they're off to, because they, they got to Louisville somehow with a stolen car. We arrest him, we write him a ticket, uh, more likely, and at some point they have to figure out a way to get home, and invariably we have another auto theft behind him. So. Chief, can you bring back the blue parrot? Uh, well, the sign, the sign is, is on display. Um, the, the, uh, I, I don't know that anybody's recreated. I don't know if, the, if Joan left the, Joni left the recipe for anybody from the family, but... Um, that would go a long way towards peace. <laughs> it, would, it would. I can remember the days when people would wait in line to get in the Blue Parrot, and over the years, like lots of things, the business kind of diminished, and they just couldn't hold on to it any longer. But uh, even as a kid, I remember going there. And so. Thank you, Chief Hayes. Oh, can I get this mic on? Uh, we have about five minutes. I know George has a radio show to get to. No, no, not no? today. I no, know. you're off today? Okay. No. Tune in on KMUS, though, if you want to hear George's Six most morning. 6 to 10 a.m. Yeah. If you have trouble sleeping, the podcast also available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have maybe five minutes for a few audience questions. Antoinette, Cree's right behind you if you want to speak into the microphone. Good morning. I'm curious if you're worried about vigilanteism. What happens when somebody comes into my house and I blow their head off? Sorry, but I'm... Well, you know, when I was DA, that happened a lot. And if, as long as you're in your house, uh, we have a law that handles that. It's called Make My Day, an old Clint Eastwood line. Yeah. Um, and, and in other states, they say, you really call that a law, Make My Day? Uh, but uh, actually, if you're in your house and uh, you're under some kind of threat or there's a threat of property, you can kill somebody in Colorado. So that's not really considered vigilante actions that's actually legal and it's been that way for quite some time and you know I got to tell you I mean I actually advise people sadly kill the person because I've seen too much too many bad things that happen when you don't so if someone's in your home and they're threatening you kill them I'm excited to see what happens at the next dinner party but um, <laughs> I am. I agree with Mitch. Here's where I'm worried about, though, and this touches on your, your question. What I do see is a growing sense, and you even see legislation offer on this, to want to say, shouldn't I be allowed to use lethal force if someone's breaking into my business or stealing my car? And you see a greater, uh, I guess, um, influence on people in making decisions like that. We're not there as a society. We don't say you get to take a life to protect a car. This isn't the old West. This isn't uh, 1883. Great show, by the way, on Paramount Plus, uh, where they're hanging car, I mean, uh, horse thieves. We just don't do that. But that is a real sentiment that's growing. And I think that my worry is as people become less confident that law enforcement can and will show up 
and, and rescue them or help them or save them or solve whatever the issue is, people are going to start to say, I'm just going to do this myself. And I don't know that they're going to cling to just the make my day environment. And that, that's where the worry is for me. One other question, Jack. Thank you. Thanks, George. Um, during the Trump administration, there was a piece of federal legislation that was passed that was addressing record levels of, of incarceration and what was, what was perceived to be unreasonable penalties. And I can't remember the details. But that seems as though it stands in conflict with what you guys are talking about, about you know, going back to sentencing capabilities for judges, et cetera. And I'm not challenging what's going on. It's just, it's a curiosity to me. What, how do you address that? First off, and Jack, thanks for the great question. By the way, go Buffs. Um, I, I'm so sorry, that was, are you, were you about to say, don't put my team name in your F, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I think you gotta acknowledge there's two different systems at work here. The feds are very different. Like if you get a sentence in the federal system and they have these sentencing guidelines where numbers matter and there's very little deviation, um, but also if you get a sentence in the federal system, you're gonna do about that whole sentence. In our system, we don't even have truth in sentencing. If you get sentenced to, you, you read someone, hits someone, a drunk person, runs over someone, kills them with their car and gets an eight year sentence. And you think that's really light. Well, surprise, it isn't eight years. They're gonna be parole eligible in about two and a half years. So we don't have truth in sentencing to begin with. And the number of mandatory sentences we have are diminished by that. So the numbers seem really big and they're great for talk topics, but they're fake. The only sentence you can count on, at least until the governor intervenes, is life without the possibility of parole. That is exactly what it is. Everything else is some other smaller version of that. And so we don't have that same issue. The other thing that we have is a parole board that seems to have lost its way. And I'm not basing that off of just straight numbers, which exist. I'm basing that off of the anecdotes where uh, my office prosecuted and convicted, for instance, a, uh, a guy who was a fake immigration doctor going around targeting Vietnamese houses in Aurora and then going in and sexually assaulting the, the women in the house, claiming that he needed to inspect them and check them out. And of course, these people all want to be good Americans, so they do it. We convict him, sentence him to 23 years to life in prison. About 10 years later, he's paroled back into Aurora where he's reoffended and he's facing charges right now. Did the exact same thing this time he targeted a Latina girl. The parole board is broken at this point. And so when you compare those two things, they're two very different systems. That is a very rigid system. Ours is very soft. There's, a, there's myths out there too about this. The idea that people with small amounts of narcotics are going to the Department of Corrections. I used to say as the DA, if you find someone that is serving a prison sentence in this penitentiary for a gram of cocaine, heroin, or less, and that's the only reason they're there, I'll let them out. I'll do what it takes to get them out. I was the DA for 12 years. That challenge stood, and no one could ever bring anybody to my attention that was in that situation. They don't go to prison. They don't go to prison on just that type of thing. The other thing is the feds print money. Colorado doesn't print money. And so when we went through the administration of Bill Ritter as governor, partially with Hickenlooper, they were like, we're gonna let all these guys out. We're gonna let all these low hanging, you know, low offenders out of prison. And you know what, they couldn't find any. 
because Colorado, and I believe the DAs in the state of Colorado were very good about, these are our limited resource, this Department of Corrections. We put people there that kill people, that rape people, that shoot people. And we were really good at it. We filled the prisons with extremely violent people, and they were still desperate to release them. And that desperation started because of budget situations in the state and has continued to this day. When he's saying the parole, yeah, he's absolutely right. I share his opinion on the parole board currently. If you did a rail of cocaine on the table in court during sentencing, you're not going to prison. You're not going to prison. You are probably going to go to jail for a short period of time. You're not going to prison. You'd have to, if you blew marijuana smoke in the judge's face, you're not going to prison, probably going to jail. And there's a difference. Um, our system is not set up to incarcerate addicts. We just don't do that. We are out of time for the panel, but I want to thank all the panelists for being here today. If this discussion does pique your interest, I will give a little plug for Common Sense Institute's podcast, which you can find on any podcatcher platform, Apple, Spotify, but Earl Wright, who's our host of the podcast, has a great almost hour conversation with George and Mitch diving into a lot of this. So check that out. Thank you, panelists. I want to give you a little gift, but thank you for being here. <laughs>